listening to another episode of the Niagara Moon Podcast, and I am Thomas Irwin. Today I'm talking with a dude by the name of Dylan Galvin, who's kind of a jazzy, folky, uh, acoustic pop singer-songwriter uh, with roots in Massachusetts, but uh, currently active in Los Angeles. He's a graduate of Berkeley School of Music and uh, did a workshop with the one and only Paul Simon at one point. He's a very thoughtful guy and has a lot to say on a number of issues, uh, not least of which uh, the music industry. You can check him out more at dylangalvin.com. He has a couple of EPs out. So yeah, let's just get into it. Stone and shards of broken glass. A child born without a dime would grow up all too fast. You know, you can be busy all day, every day, but if yeah. you don't know exactly where you're going, you're just going to be a very busy person that goes nowhere. You're going to make like 3% progress in 20 different directions. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and you go by like forums and you read all these blogs, but and then you realize the whole lie about most of the blogs is that they're all this SEO. Uh, keyword rich nonsense that they're not designed to help you they're de- they're actually designed it's a marketing strategy it's it's designed to confuse you yeah so you start second guessing yourself and then you go well where do i get the answers oh well this genius who wrote this blog seems to know the answer but little do you know all they did was implant doubt in your mind so that you pay for their service yeah. and there's like 10 million people doing that and it makes me furious yeah well dylan we're hitting on the uh the good stuff early with this um <laughs> you know this frustration you're encountering with uh a lot of snake oil yeah. uh, salesmen out there with, um, you know, advice in the new age of music and promoting yourself. And, you know, I kind of see it as a large part of the uh, quote unquote music industry is uh, the musician industry of people figuring out how to, um, you know, become a, a middleman or, or make some profit off of, you know, unsuspecting musicians who are trying to figure out how to uh, how to build their career. And they kind of, yep. you know, take them in unhelpful directions. So cutting through that noise is always, uh, can be a challenge. It, it's extremely challenging. And the other thing is like musicians are probably, they're notoriously, we're the dumbest business people in the world. I mean, we're the worst artists <laughs> in general, because the, the thing that makes you good as an artist makes you not good as a business person until you have until you understand the way that business works and then you can apply your artistic um, skills through that. But like, it's not a, like they're not learning about art doesn't make you good at business. Like you just have to learn certain things. They're two very different skills. Yeah. Yep. Um, And there are people that all they do is they research business and marketing and they're like, Hey, there's like a 5 million stupid musicians out there. We can, we can shake their pockets with, for some change and they won't even know they'll think they need us. Yeah. And, um, and I think that, you know, the, uh, a lot of the mainstream record labels have kind of done that in the past to artists. And, um, you know, you hear these horror stories about artists who are bankrupt and it's like, well, you made your label like $10 million. Why are you bankrupt? It's because people at the label know the business. The musician doesn't, they just go, you know, Oh, there's talent there. That's an asset for me. I'll worry about all the hard contracts. You just play and have fun yeah, and live yeah. your dream. Here's a little pat on the back and some Jack Daniels and you go have fun <laughs> being an idiot. Um, and a lot of people, more people now are kind of doing that 
on a, on a smaller scale because the knowledge has spread via the internet. But the good thing is now the knowledge is available to everyone, including musicians. And a lot of musicians are becoming much more savvy about knowing what they don't need help with yeah. because there's just useless middlemen everywhere. People are sort of their their understanding of what the actual industry is. You know, if you're going to approach it as like a a career, they're starting to uh-huh. be able to break down all the misconceptions and the outdated ideas that we've yep. carried over from like 40 years ago. So yep. that that is encouraging yep. to see. Um, so you uh, you're also you have one foot in the acting world. Um, I saw you've you've done a lot of acting work. So I imagine entertainment industry in general, you see uh, this kind of phenomenon? Yeah. So when I, when I first got out to LA, I, I came out, I drove out here at the time I had um, a girlfriend and we drove out separately because she got a real job. <laughs> well, it's not really any more real. She got it's a stable just, job. Yeah. Like a, like a responsible uh, job. And she came out here early because they're like, we need you to start at this date. And so I was like, well, I'm going to turn my trip. If I'm going to drive out to California, I might as well go on tour. Yeah. So I turned it into a tour. Uh, it was like seven or eight days. And when I finally got here, um, I realized like I, I, I showed up and I was like, all right, time to take L.A. by storm. I'm going to book all these shows. I'm going to kill it. And the months went by and the shows did not come and the money did not get made. And slowly my savings went from 10000 yeah, yeah. to zero. And I was like, I think I'm going to have to be I'm going to have to go outside my comfort zone and see if there's other ways I can make money without doing the traditional nine to five, because I, um, I've always been a proponent of the idea of you must, must not have a plan B. If you ever have a plan B after enough time, your plan B becomes plan A because wherever the money comes from, if the money comes from plan B more easily, we're creatures of habit and least resistance. We will go for where the money comes from. So you will shelf all the other work and you'll say, well, you know, I got this job at Petco and it's really responsible and you're miserable and you hate every day of your life, but you're, you'll lie to yourself because the money comes in. And I'm like, I know that there's a tendency for humans to do that. So I didn't want to do that. So acting, I, I tried acting and um, that was not necessarily any wiser than music because it's every bit as hard to make money from it. I'd but. say, I mean, I can imagine one of the um, advantages of getting into acting too, is it makes uh, the music seem a little more attainable <laughs> like the only <laughs> thing i can think of that's harder to uh make make progress and then music must be the uh the entertainment industry um yeah being an actor but you i don't know you you had some adventures with it so far it sounds sounds like it was the only thing i think harder than music is acting and it was basically because i've been doing music for like 10 years so i i have some understanding about uh, the business on a small scale with acting, I was completely green. I had no idea. I literally started off on Craigslist typing in acting. Like I, I didn't know. <laughs> Got to start like, somewhere. Acting, acting in movies, local movies. And I started responding to casting calls on Craigslist and I would talk to people on set and I did some background work and I was in a couple of short things and Eventually, I got enough knowledge to go, okay, I need to get on like LA Casting and Actors Access and, you know, all these other casting websites. And those kind of act like these lead generation systems where all the people that are making movies, they put their movie up there and then you respond to it. And then if they like your response, they'll check out your profile and your resume Mm. and your headshots. And then you can potentially get some work there. And I did that. And um. I built those up, but not to the point where it's a sustainable career, but I did get a few paying jobs and some commercials. 
Uh, okay, one, so, you, so it sounds like you fell into acting not necessarily because it was like your number one creative dream, but just like a side hustle for the music thing and it's still creative. Is that closer yeah, to... It was, you know, it's, it's funny. When I started, the first time I acted, I was like, I think I might like this more than music. Oh, interesting. And, but I didn't know until I did it. But, here, but the other thing is, I also know that in order to do something, if you really want to do it, like you're going to have to learn the business. And so now that I have a little bit more business stuff in mind with the music, I'm kind of like, okay, I'm going to put the acting on hold because I think that I can kind of push forward in the music for now hmm. with my newfound business information pertaining to music. And I'm going to go with that. And once that, like, once I have enough money, there's cash flow that I can live off of from the originals, like supplementing the cover gigs. Yeah. Um, I'm going to put a little bit more time back into acting. But the thing is with acting, I did it to try and make money. I really didn't make a whole lot of money. Um, I just kind of learned some new skills, but it really wasn't. Because um, the second the music picked back up, I'm like, okay, I got to go back yeah, to yeah. music which is justifying that idea of wherever the money comes from, that's kind of where you go. So I don't want to like get some job I hate yeah. in some, you know, 50th floor of an office, like, you know, stamping TPS reports and making, you know, 15,000 a month. Yeah. You don't want to get uh, thrown off too far. Yeah. Um, but so when did uh, your career of uh, being a musician, when, when did this all start for you? So I read you went to Berkeley I did. Uh, I got out, I got out of high school, and um, I was like, I'm not gonna do anything other than music. I mean, I'm just I'm just not like I. So you, I you knew that I, by the time you graduated. Yeah, because I went through school, and you know, I kind of thought I entertained engineering, and maybe architecture, and a few other things. But I was like, you know what? I don't. I just don't like the regimen of the normal like sit here for this amount of time and do these things and you must do them. No, and no matter how horribly or well you do them, you'll get paid the same amount because you sit in that chair for this many hours. I, I hate that. And I just can't, all I do is think of the clock and the yeah. timer counting down. It is but pretty daunting. Not, yeah. But if it's like, you know, music is completely not like that because it's, uh, you kind of are, hodgepodging like a like a makeshift tree for it. you're hodgepodging your career one step in front of you and then you're jumping into the building you just made and it ch what you do changes on a daily basis and um music was just much more interesting to me than most of the formal choices so i knew that um i i just yeah i just didn't want to really do anything else and um i was still kind of even even though i wanted to do music more than anything else i was still kind of undecided because i was like I don't, I'm picking this mostly because I can't think of anything else, but I, I like it a lot more than anything else that I know of. But what if there's some other thing? And I was like, you know what, whatever you, you, you only have a finite amount of time yeah. on earth. So just pick something that you really like and do it. And maybe I like teaching Mandarin more, but I don't know that. Cause I, <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? Too busy with music. Yeah. And, uh, do you come from like a musical family? Is there that tradition and yeah, uh, my dad was my dad was in a rock band called the Bleeding Hearts, and they were in Massachusetts. Okay. And the, I, I had imagined the '80s in the very early part of the '90s. I would say probably mostly the '80s, maybe the late '70s and the '80s. When when I was born, we moved to Maryland, and we lived in my grandparents' house. And at that point, my dad wasn't playing in a rock band anymore because he was like you know eight states away. But uh, 
Yeah, he, he did that. And my great grandmother, I didn't know this till after she died, but she was a touring musician in like the 30s and 40s. And her, her wow. name was Millie, Millie Melody. Millie and, Melody. Uh, yeah, she was she was pretty similar to Patsy Cline. And I thought I, the coolest part about that whole story is that like I knew her as my great Nana. Like she was my slow talking, very loving, cookie making grandmother who lived alone in an apartment in Boston or in Lynn. And I didn't know as a kid, you know, you think of old people, they were always old. You didn't realize like they were young once and they did things and, yeah, you know, um, and I found all this out afterwards, like after I decided I was going to do music for a living. And it was just really, really cool to find that out. And then one of my songs that I wrote called The Lass was was a story that when I found out what her life was, it had this very striking similarity to her life. And I was like, this is going to this is her song now. Um, so that, that was kind of interesting. Dedication, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah. And my grandmother's a painter. Um, she's actually a, a really good painter. Um because some people paint, but, you know, she, she's entered some local uh, art competitions and won some awards. And, um, yeah, she's great at that. So arts, the arts yeah. run in my family. So yeah. definitely strong presence there. But uh, so your dad, a rocker in the 80s, when uh, when it became clear to him that you, if not a similar path, you you wanted to become a full-time musician. That was something you uh, you had in mind. What was his uh, advice to you or his, his reaction? You know, I think he was really happy about it, and because um, he never he never tried to make me do music because he, you know, it's like some parents they like vicariously make their kids do the thing that they never got to do. Yeah, they, they push you to take lessons, and yeah, like you know, dance moms sometimes are notorious for that. You know, my my little darling, she's so she yeah, wins yeah. first place all time. It's like, mom, I don't really want to do this, but my dad never did that, um, and he also never really made me feel like I couldn't do that. So that was cool to not have the pressure either way, because then I decided and I was like, OK, this is my decision. Um, but when I kind of gravitated towards guitar in high school, I think uh, I think it was I think it was nice for him. He, he enjoyed that because it was something that kind of happened automatically. And uh, it was just an or organic thing. My grandparents bought me a guitar and I kind of didn't play it at first. And then one day I just picked it up and. I started playing and he kind of noticed and I th yeah, it was, it was kind of one of those things that I'm sure he was like, that's, that's pretty cool. Let's, let's see where this goes. And then it just kept developing. And then I started playing out live and started booking shows. And then I went to music college and um, yeah, it just kept developing. And now it's like what I do. And um, I feel, I do feel a certain sense of obligation, not like, not in a bad way, but because my family and other people have been so supportive um, I, I want this to work. I want to, I don't want to be the struggling, um, you know, 40 something playing a cheeseburger in paradise, you know, playing a sweet Caroline <laughs> in the corner da, under a football da, da. game, wanting to headbutt a brick wall. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I want, I want this to work be, because they, they put so much, you know, um, they put trust in me and they said, yeah, you can do this. So, I know, I know the whole, you know, the whole of your life is not simply doing something for your parents or, or other, what other people think, but I, I appreciate that so many people have been supportive of me doing this and I want to follow through with it. Yeah, no, it is. I can imagine it must be so encouraging to have that support at, you know, different steps along the way. 
And um, when did you really, um, when do you consider the point where you uh, really like came into your own in terms of your identity as a musician? You kind of, you really developed um, on your songwriting and great singer and guitarist. When did you kind of um, really define your style? Stylistically, uh, I think stylistically and professionally were two, like, I developed stylistically at a different time than professionally. Yeah. Stylistically, I would say when I was going to, when I first started going to Berkeley, I was like three or four semesters in and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Um, I feel like I'm 10 years behind on all things. Like if I was 10 years younger, my life would be right on course. I'd be doing everything yeah, I should. I think a lot of people <laughs> have that thought at some point. Um, yeah. So I was at Berkeley and I'm like, you know, they just, at high school, they're like, pick what you want to do for the rest of your life, kick you out the door. And, you know, it's like, dude, you're like 17. You don't yeah, know. Yeah. Um, but you have to make a decision. So I went there and I was like, okay, I know what I want to do music, but then there's all these like sub genres of music. I could do business or I could be a songwriter or I could be a performer or what. Yeah. And I was studying jazz guitar because that was like default because Berkeley is all about you know, guitarists, there's so many guitarists there. And I was like, well, jazz seems like a really good thing to do because it's like modern, but, and it'll train me to do other things. Like if you can play jazz. It's, yeah. You start it's, there and then you're able to, yeah, to it's branch such a, out it's a such lot an, from there. Yeah, exactly. It's such an intensive training. So I was like, I'm going to be a jazz guitarist, but I, I, there were so many good people there and I was oh, some of the best in the world. Right. I mean, Oh yeah. It, that's like, where they all congregate. And one try of the, to outshine one of the, each other exactly one one of the things that made me um kind of start wondering about should i do this is like they were really good like i was not on par with the level of playing that i was seeing and i was like they these guys started when they were like six or or, or if they started later they're way further ahead than me and i'm i'm not that good at this and i don't I'm not passionate about jazz guitar. I just want to do it because I feel like it's a good thing. But then I, I was like, okay, I'm going to take a risk. I'm going to, I'm going to switch gears. Someone mentioned this. They have songwriting classes here. So I've written some songs and let's see what happens. And so I took a lyric writing class, with Pat Patterson, uh, in a songwriting class. And after one semester, I was like, bam, this is it. Wow. Songwriting is over. It's so much, it, this is my thing. Like, I understand this start to finish. I, I get the process. It, it just makes sense to my mind. And I had, um, there's a teacher there. His name was Henry Gaffney. And he had written some songs with Diana, for, for Diana Ross, I think. And he did this whole spiel one class about how songwriters have these really troublesome jobs of taking these really horribly written songs that these superstars write because the superstars just they're like the personality and the face but they 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 don't get songwriting or lyric writing and they write these things and it's like it's absolute garbage <laughs> and he's like it's the it's the job of the songwriters to polish the turd so all and those they, songs you see that's it's credited towards the singer and some other faceless person you know that the co-writing credits that's that's what that's all about you, you typically not always like sometimes the 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 main face is actually a good songwriter but in a lot of instances they're it's like a business model so they're trying to make that person seem better than they are so they throw a team of songwriters to to make them not write terrible songs because if it was just up to them everything they would write would be awful because songwriting is its separate art so 
he pulled me outside of class one day and he gave me a lot of words of encouragement. And he said, like, I really think that you should do this. I have a lot of students that come through this and, and they do songwriting and, and they you can't tell them as a teacher, but like they don't have they're never going to be songwriters. Like no matter how much your, your mind has to be calibrated a certain way. And I don't even know if I fully agree with that, but he encouraged me because I was self-doubting. And here I have this professional songwriter who's been in the business for like 30 years. And he's like, you got to do this. Yeah. So I was like, okay. There we go. No more jazz guitar. I'm going to songwriting. And um, that was kind of when I decided to be be a songwriter. But I spent so much time with my guitar. So it kind of makes makes me write in a similar way of John Mayer, where he's a guitar based songwriter. A lot of a lot of songwriters nowadays, they write tracks. Yeah, there's there's like if you go back, you know, you go back a few decades and you can hear the difference in the writing. Like there was a lot of things that were through composed, like yesterday by the Beatles or Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah. A lot of Queen was through composed where it's not a track. It's a song. It's yeah. a story that unfolds as it goes along and there's development. Now it's kind of like write a verse, write a chorus, um, you know, over top of a pre-existing beat with like mm. some, some piano lines and some other stuff, but it's not. It's not the same style of writing, and I don't. So it, there's there's a distinct difference between very cookie cutter formula. That's how a lot of um, artists like to approach it: is this safe bet, this safe bet? Okay, this beat that's at the right BPM for this purpose, and then uh, we'll tack on this verse from over here. Versus a story start to finish that the artist like it's a you know their personal expression. So Queen was huge on that. Like they're they're taking you on a journey versus just going through the motions. So you- uh-huh. I didn't understand any of that when I first started out. I was just writing because I I just wanted to write, and I probably like r- really early on because I was a guitar player, and um, John Mayer was in the popular music world. Like if you were an acoustic guitar player like a teenage 20 something guitar player when John Mayer first got big, like you were learning John Mayer songs. That was like, yeah. Dave Matthews was the same way. Like everyone learned Dave Matthews and John Mayer. And so I had that pre-existing influence, but he kind of, he kind of made me want to write songs. Um, or, or when I started writing songs, I noticed that I started to gravitate towards him because I felt like with the framework that he wrote, which was, guitar-based storytelling well i was like well i'm also an acoustic guitar player and i want to tell stories so i wrote that way i guess you know just by the nature of the way that i was introduced to music um and writing with writing with a track it's it doesn't have to be cookie cutter but it i feel when um it makes it it makes the production, the, the production of the track is the star of the show, hmm. not necessarily the story. Um, and I think the biggest thing that has left the mainstream music world is good storytelling. In the last, since around 2000, 2005, it, it kind of took a back seat because producers just got so good and technology just increased rapidly. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of artists who were, uh, they were joining with producers and the producers were doing the heavy lifting. And so the dialogue and the progress of the song has taken a backseat to the production and it yeah. hasn't really recovered yet. And, um, you know, that's a shame because with, with the internet, if you go on Instagram, 
and you look up, you know, videos of people playing guitar in their room, you, you are uh, able to witness a level of talent that was unheard of 30 years ago because all these other instrumentalists are listening to each other and watching each other. Yeah. And so the, the, the bar is just going through the roof right now. And there's all this cross pollination of influence and all this other cool stuff. You would hope that that would happen with songwriting, but it doesn't seem to be in the, in the level that more production collaborations or singer with producer are collaborating, but it's not like this, um, the, the, the art of songwriting doesn't seem to be yeah. moving forward, or if it is, it doesn't seem to be getting its fair share in the mainstream like the other things are. Yeah, I've kind of noticed that myself, and I wonder if that might be partially because uh, it's something that doesn't translate quite as easily. It's not immediately obvious, like a lot of other components of music are, and just a lot of people aren't gonna, you know, nowadays aren't necessarily gonna uh, appreciate it or notice it as much. They might just accept what they have now, you know. I, I absolutely agree. I think that people would, I, I really do think people would appreciate it. Um, but it is not like really, really good songwriting is not always something that is that you get with the first listen. It's, it's like an aged wine. You have to spend time with it to understand what makes it good. And over, over time, there's layers and layers of its goodness that are revealed. Yeah. If you spend the time to look L like a painting, like, yeah, a really good painting, you might not really know what the artist is saying in the first 15 seconds, but our, our culture is just like going rapid fire. So it's like one of those art forms that kind of didn't get to, you know, be on the front seat of the roller coaster as everything's pushing forward and everything's instant gratification. Like I want to yeah. see, you know, a girl falling off a slide and explosions and like cat videos and it's got to be like instant gratification and songwriting is something that takes a really it requires too much um, patience sometimes yeah yeah but I, I think people do like love that and that's why it was so uh popular like really good songwriting was a staple of american music in the 60s and 70s but it got buried under you know, the marketing efforts and the fireworks and the Motley Crue and the, you know, bringing snakes on stage and girls in bikinis doing yeah. dances. And it's just like so much to compete with. And people were finally, you know, they just were like, they slowly got, it was like a bait and switch, like a magician doing a trick. You know <laughs> what I mean? Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. That's a great way to put it. Um, but have you been able to find a community so far of like-minded people, either if they're other musicians or fans that kind of are seeing this phenomenon and, you know, trying to, to turn things around at all or go in um, a different direction? I do have a few friends out here that are of that mindset. I wouldn't say there's a full community because when I have this conversation with musicians that I know in L.A., I would, I would find just as many people who completely disagree, if not mm. more, and they're like, well, the music industry has always been like this. And, well, it always know, has been full of predators. That part is true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And I remember I had a I had a disagreement with um, a guy in one of my um, theater uh, productions where he was saying, you know, if you go back into the, you know, go back forty years, it wasn't like the good old days, and now is bad because you can go and see Elvis, and he he used to dance, and they used to censor him out on television. And so it was always the same. There was always someone being controversial. I was like, but here's the thing that you're not seeing. Controversy, what is once controversy, 
once once people do that enough, it no longer becomes controversy, and then they have to be more yeah. controversial in order to get the same reaction. And we have been moving that bar line for 50 years and not counting. When Elvis danced with his hips, they blocked him out from the waist down because that was too controversial. Nicki Minaj can take off her pants and with like nothing but a thong in high def be twerking like five inches away from the camera and people like barely pay attention because that's not enough to get their attention right. anymore. It's like, it's not the same. It's definitely Yeah, it's going to, I guess you got to hit a wall at some point if, if you're thinking about it that way. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's crazy to think. I mean, it's, I think of one thing, I mean, there's still lots of great music being made every day. There's plenty out there for um, for someone with particular tastes to still consume and enjoy. But I think oh, yeah. one thing uh, that suffered is people used to appreciate more that um, different roles in creating music and promoting it, but like just even with creating it, you needed different people with different um, specialties and um, different strengths working together. You had people whose only job it was was to write songs, or you had a lot more of those kind of people. People who only arranged, people who only mixed, um, people who only promoted, but who also, you know, had some uh, some artistic integrity and and um, had an ear and and had a vision. You had all these different people working together. And I mean, part of it is technology and being able to do more yourself and cutting costs, but it's like past a certain point, um, people doing a half-assed job of 10 different things, whereas you ha used to have 10 different professionals um, in, all, in all aspects, I think. And I wonder, you know, part of that could be when the, the model, the business model changed, it's not about selling units anymore and people not being able to adapt from that and onto the next thing yet. And I don't know. Have you, you seem like you've had some thoughts about this. Yeah, um, I think that the 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 thing the thing that seems most apparent with what happened is that it used to be. Um, I don't think that the mainstream had the the aspect of their business down to a science in the way that they do now, and there was a lot of risks being taken in prior decades. They didn't fully know what was going to work and what wasn't, so they're like, "Well, let's try this." It was more of a like, this is what already exists. Let's figure out how to market this rather than let's create a product from the ground up and then market that product, that mm. product being the musician. Yeah. And there, there's a certain, um, someone made a post on Facebook. It was the greatest post. You know, the whole thing with Game of Thrones and how all the fans were like freaking out about how the ending was bad or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And, they, like, and, the, and the writers of the show were like, you know what? We, we're, we don't care too bad. I, I am I am of the mindset the audience doesn't get to vote on art. Like you don't you don't you as a viewer, that's not your job, it's not your right. And and shame on people who have marketed so hard that they've basically made this expectation that the audience gets to decide, you know, mm. the outcome of something. That's not art. That's like a that's a different thing. And it's I think you're you're taking it's like uh you're taking the job of a plumber away to somebody who doesn't know anything about plumbing. Exactly. You, it's like the plumber going going to some old lady's house and saying, so Ethel, um, you, yeah, your, your toilet's exploding. There's like crap everywhere. What, what, what should I do? What would you like mm. me to do? She's like, oh, just, um, you know, just, uh, take the piece of rubber and put it in there. And say, okay. I'll do <laughs> so, that. So that it's the like, equivalent thing is, is happening with music more, you think? Um, 
I think it's happening too much where they're trying to create, they're, they're trying to pander too hard because they want to make back their investment so much. Um, they've reduced the risk and they, they've involved the audience in a way that it, it's unnatural because generally an audience is like, they gather around, someone does something that's cool, or that's interesting, or they say something and audience gathers around and they listen. But now it's like, well, we've studied these audience tendencies and we're going to try to alter what that person is going to say so that the audience wants, uh, they're going to say exactly what the audience wants to hear prior, but without any like original thought of their own. Mm. And there's a, there's a negative impact because that takes it out of the realm of art and just makes it entertainment. And we've blurred the line. There's like art over here and there's entertainment over here and they're two separate things. And it's okay when they kind of slide in between, but like the mainstream has just gone, like turn the art all the way to volume zero, turn the entertainment yeah. to volume a hundred. And so everyone's just saying what the audience wants to hear because once the money rolls in, yeah. news you know, certainly turned out that way. Absolutely. Cable news channels are, are one example that comes to mind when we're speaking yeah. on that phenomenon. Yep. Well, we're getting a little closer to the end, so I don't want to dwell on that for too much longer. Um, but I wanted to ask you about your experience with Paul Simon. Ooh, okay. Let me close my window real quick. I'll be right back. All right, so Mr. Paul Simon, what can I say about him? He is, he's very intelligent. He's very somber. Um, he's kind of- So how'd you meet him? How'd you uh, get in a room with him? Um, there was this thing at Berkeley where they sent an email out. I got an email saying, you know, hey, don't get too excited, but you're one of 50 students. We're going to- Paul Simon's going to come to uh, the college and we're going to pick a few of you out of the 50. We're going to whittle it down a few. Uh, so don't get too excited, but you're one of the 50. So congratulations. A couple weeks later, hey, there's 25 left. You're one of the 25. Then you're, there's 15 left. There's 12 left. Paul Simon himself is going to pick six of you. Wow. So you're still in the running. And so then I got to be, be at this building at this time. You're going to meet with Paul Simon and... Here's the, here's what, here's why it's shameful for me. <laughs> I didn't know who Paul Simon was. That is quite shameful. <laughs> so I bought Graceland and uh, Simon and Garfunkel, uh, greatest hits. And I bought some, uh, Paul Simon greatest hits. And I listened yeah. and I was like, oh man, he's really good. Um, uh, my favorite song of his, all, of all time is, uh, um, still crazy after all these years. Yep. It's I love classic. that song. That, so good. And um, a lot of Diamonds on the Soles of Her Shoes is mm. another great one. Yeah. So I got well-versed in knowing just how scared I should be right before I went um, because he's such a – he's so good. So I met him. I played a song, uh, song History, off of my first album, basically like a um, you know pop rock tune about uh, missing someone, having to leave someone and, and, and um, being um, – not wanting to leave them, basically – and I played that for him and he suggested that I try, he, he, he was there to give us ideas that we yeah. can incorporate in our songwriting to make them more unique. And his suggestion for my song was to incorporate this polyrhythmic African um, kind of chant thing over the bridge. Of course but it I was. Already, yeah, <laughs> of course. Oh, yeah. But he, he, like he, when he suggested that I had already recorded the song and I was like, I could, you can't say I'm not going to do that. Paul Simon, like you just got to go. Yeah. Okay. 
so then when we, we met with him again, and so I took it as advice and I wrote a completely new song based on that feedback. And it was yeah. a song called Keystone that I never released, but I, the, it's a pop song, but it's in seven, eight and the, okay. and the um, bridge or the uh, refrain modulates between seven, eight and six, eight. So it's a lot of altered time signatures in there. It came out really well. So that was, uh, but he, he's just like such a, uh, he's like a very observant guy and he seems like he's just kind of very super introverted. He's very quiet and he seems to think a lot before he says anything. Um, he's always, you know, thinking. Yeah. Um, a lot going on in his head. Yeah. Yeah. So that must definitely. have been pretty empowering to have that experience with him early on. And then you, uh, you have this story to tell to other songwriters as you make yeah, the rounds. Was, I think I didn't like, it was one of those things that was kind of surreal where I wasn't, I didn't fully register until a long time after it happened. And it's like, well, that was real. Wow. It, it was, it was just, I, I was like, I wasn't ready for that experience yet. Cause I was still new to songwriting, you know, but that was just, that was, I look back on those. And when I'm, when I'm having trouble, I'm struggling, I'm doubting, you know, I just go back. I'm like, look, if, if this stuff doesn't happen, I was, I was like a couple months into my songwriting when when these things happen so like let those be your evidence and and continue for it because that that it's very those things don't happen by accident yeah that's great well i would definitely love to talk more um there's a lot we uh didn't get to but um unfortunately i uh i gotta meet a friend in a few minutes but um thanks again dylan for coming on I really enjoyed this, and I would love to know um, what you uh, got going on next. What do you want to give a shout-out to? Okay. I don't know if I can make – I'm going on tour, but I don't know if I can announce it yet. Okay. That, so that, maybe that, uh, maybe um, – so what uh, what releases do you have out? How many, how many albums? I have two EPs out right now. One is called Second Stories. That is the album I wrote when I was at Berkeley College of Music. The other is called Remember to Play. And um, that's the most recent one that was about a little, roughly two years ago. Um, And it's about not forgetting your inner child. Um, And, you know, just be a little bit of Peter Pan in your adult life. It's okay. Just, uh, you know, every now and then if you have kids, go out and play football with them in the yard. Um, You know, get the shopping cart at the grocery store and just ride down the aisle. Like, don't let life completely defeat you and make you one of those like dull glazed eyed miserable people don't give up yeah up into space. <laughs> um, but you can get them both, both from my website dylangalvin.com uh, and uh if you make a request i will i will personally sign them and i also have an email list that um if you'd like to sign up you'll get a exclusive offer for that and these handmade uh, necklaces that say hashtag lyrics matter or not no hashtag sorry just lyrics matter so that's all at um, dylangalvin.com uh, Dylan again thank you so much for doing this um, it's always good to hear uh, words of wisdom from somebody out there in, uh, in the big city really trying to go for it so I was, I was excited we could do this awesome man alright Dylan Galvin very talented dude very earnest, very hardworking, determined. Hope things keep on moving for him. So let's listen to one of his songs from his newer EP called Remember to Play. This is a song called The Chesapeake. 
So enjoy that, and I'll be back next week. Just